Good morning. As Amanda said, my name's Adam, and I'm pleased that you're here, and I'm pleased to be here. I didn't plan to say this, but when Amanda said, what are the things we can, we can give thanks for? It's remarkable the power of gratitude. And sometimes we can be so surrounded by things that aren't as we would like them to be that we can be quite, quite down with reason. But the power of gratitude, the power of pausing and looking around and expressing thanks, sometimes for the simple things, really changes us. So may I encourage you in that rhythm, especially in the days when it's hard. Those are the days when it makes the, the most difference to be grateful for things. I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful that we've, that we've been joined together in this this community. I'm grateful for my family. My daughter Eden is on her way to Berea and I'm grateful for the camp and for the people that are making that happen and my younger daughter's here and Sarah's driving them and I'm grateful for family and I'm also grateful that somehow England are playing in the final of the European Cup. And I say somehow because it doesn't happen often. Even people like me that are fairly low-level football fans at this point we all lean in with the national team. Uh, they're playing Italy tonight, so if you believe in miracles, pray. Um, if you don't, well, just, just wish them well, because they need it. Anyway, other than the sports news, news can be quite depressing. And the problem with news being depressing is we've now got it 24 hours a day, and it follows us around in our pockets and bad news makes more headlines than good news. And it just keeps coming at us. Some things that I heard this week, and these are just statements. I'm not saying that I necessarily agree with them, but these are statements that I've heard. You may have heard similar. You may have even said them. I heard someone say, society is losing all of its moral values. Some people will be nodding. I was at a conference with church leaders last month and somebody addressed the floor and they opened their statement by saying America is going to hell in a handbasket. I didn't know what that meant. I had to Google that phrase. <laughs> but when he said it, there was lots of people that were given this kind of nod, mm, kind of agreement <laughs> nod. Uh, and then I heard this other phrase where someone said, if only we could go back to this moment, this era, this decade. And the problem with that idea, that way of thinking, is firstly, you can't go back. And secondly, if you study the decades of history, a moment in time that's good for one demographic isn't necessarily always good for the whole. So often we align with what worked for us without the consideration of our neighbor, of which that was a lousy time. But no one really can hear these comments without some sense of agreement that things are not as they're meant to be. Things are not as they should be. If you've ever read page one of the Bible, you realize that it starts with a good story and it's a happy place and things go well. And there's people and there's God and there's relationship and it's good. And then we look at the news and hear some of these comments and think, my goodness me, what went wrong? What a great question. The answer is lots of things. The more interesting question, the question that I want to look at this week and next week is what goes right? What does God do about it? 
and what's our part to play in it? I want to come at it with some answers. No one's disagreeing that things aren't as they should be, but, but what do we do about that? Let me show you some pictures. I believe that often a picture is worth many words. So here's the first one. Have a look at this. Picture one, if you've got it, photo one. I took this photo a couple of months ago. I was having some work done on my car, and I'm waiting in one of these waiting rooms, and the mechanic is messing with the room. Put the picture back up. I'll explain in case anyone can't fully see it. So you've got lottery tickets here, and you've got candy here, and cigarettes here, and in the middle of it is Jesus on a cross. And I looked at this picture, which, by the way, the person that put the Jesus on the cross probably put it there for very good reasons. Because while they sell these products, they also have some faith of sorts. So while we might look at it and go, that's terrible, I also looked at it and thought, one interesting picture of the way so many people live their lives. That we've got this, and this, and this, and somewhere in the middle is Jesus. Let's look at this next picture, the second picture. This may be a familiar picture to some of you. I grew up with this picture of Jesus. This was the story that I was told. This was my upbringing. This is Jesus, and he's often got this glow. Um, he's nearly always carrying a lamb, and it just looks very peaceful and happy and, and very, very nice. And I grew up with this idea of Jesus, that Jesus is the nicest, nice guy ever, and looks something like this. I want to ask this question. What if we've misread Jesus? What if we've misinterpreted the person of God? Or what if we've assumed that we can understand this Jesus, box this Jesus, identify this Jesus, and either squeeze him between the cigarettes, lottery tickets, and candy, or say he looks like the nicest person that's ever lived. I want to encourage you and me and us in our thinking that the Jesus that sometimes looks very tame is not tame, but is wild. And at times, we've tamed this Jesus to fit our box or to squeeze between our bits and pieces, whatever that might be. And it may not be lottery tickets and cigarettes. It may be something else. But we've squeezed Jesus in. I want to introduce you to the idea that Jesus is way more wild than these nice pictures have always portrayed him to be. That's what I want to look at. I want to ask the question, who is this Jesus and what does it look like for us to follow and to live like that Jesus? So, where am I going with this? At the beginning of this year, on the first Sunday of the year, I said, we need a Jesus revolution. And some people nodded and, 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 and instantly were like, oh yeah. Some people, and I would be one of them, probably went, I wonder what that word means. That's what I want to look at some more. Jesus was and is revolutionary. When I say revolutionary, I'm not talking about a political idea, although that's in the mix in terms of the way he interacted. 
I am talking about a wild, unpredictable Jesus that reframes things, thinks differently to us, at times is gentle, and at other times is turning the tables with a righteous sense of, of rage because this is not okay. I want to look at all of this, Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me, and we're going to start the first book of the New Testament, Matthew 4, verse 23 to 25, and it's going to appear on the screen. And I want to look at this Jesus, Jesus the revolutionary. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This is one of these short paragraphs that paints a wide, vibrant picture. I'll read it again. Jesus went through out Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among them. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. This Jesus is not tame. This is revolutionary. To be gathering crowds at a time where that could cause unrest. Because is this crowd going to revolt against Rome? Or is this crowd not adhering to the religious regulations? To do that in itself was controversial. To proclaim a kingdom message, which was always the message that Jesus preached. If you've read any of the Gospels, this reoccurring theme is Jesus keeps talking about another kingdom. Kingdom means another rule and reign. And in this instance, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, which sounds nice until you consider that in that context, there already was another rule and reign, another order of doing things. And Jesus' order isn't sitting nicely alongside this other political narrative or religious order. Jesus is pushing the other one to one side and introducing a new kingdom, another kingdom. This is revolutionary language which leads to persecution, if not crucifixion. Jesus is highly revolutionary in what he's doing. And I think it would be naive of us to assume that he didn't know that he was stirring these pots. He did know. Unpacking it some more. 
He starts in synagogues. He speaks in synagogues. When we read synagogues, we think churches and we think gatherings like this. And there is a place for that and we need that. And we've missed being together over the last year. And if you're joining us online, may I say to you, I'm glad you're with us online. When you can be with us not online, we look forward so much to worshiping with you in person because we've missed it and we were made to be together and we can't operate detached in the same way that we can when we come together. We need each other. That is the way God gifts the church. We were made to be in relationship with God and we were made to be in relationship with each other and no one person has all the gifts but when we come together, it's a holy moment and it's a beautiful movement. So synagogues, it starts there. But it's not just buildings. In the original first century setting, this word can also talk about village assemblies and gatherings of people, not necessarily a building that was used for worship. So what we're talking about is community coming together, centered around a different message, a different kingdom, revolutionary and beautiful. The world needs community. Over the last year, we have been inundated with connectivity where I have found myself as a parent who genuinely is interested in my children's education, unable to keep up with all of the emails from the school and read them all. We have been bombarded with content And I don't think at the moment coming out of COVID, any of us are saying, oh, I'm so content hungry. I'd like some more, please. What we're lacking is community. And one of the problems in the world is this lack. And one of the answers is the world needs a better example of community. And Jesus is showing us what that looks like in a revolutionary way where he's traveling and he's moving and wherever two or three people are gathered, he seems to sit with them in the middle of them. One of the answers to the many problems that we see in the world is we need a better example of Christian community. It says that he was teaching. He was teaching a better way to live. In a world where some of those statements introducing the state of affairs are accurate and at times concerningly fitting, Jesus' teaching is a better way to live, a better way to love, a better way to marry, a better way to care for people, all ages, from the unborn to the very elderly. Jesus' teaching is restorative in a revolutionary way, which I would suggest strongly would be a considerable fix to many of the world's problems if we followed and lived the teaching of Jesus. So as Jesus was traveling, he was teaching. What I like about this passage, it says that he was teaching and proclaiming the good news. He wasn't teaching with the you're in trouble, you've messed up badly. He was teaching, and at times it was a corrective tone, but it was good news, not bad news. It was teaching how to live a better way, a different kingdom, aware that that clashes with the other kingdom. But it's good news, and it's available for all. 
If the world has lost its way as much as some of us would say it has, the teaching of Jesus and the proclamation of good news will be a phenomenal answer to many of the problems that we see. Every disease, this is bold language, every disease and every weakness. Matthew is generalizing. He's not saying every single sick person in that region was healed on that day. What he's saying is there is no condition or lack or problem that is beyond the power of God to bring change. All situations, from mental health to physical health to the work of the devil, which is undeniably present in the world that we live in today. And you don't need to see many news stories to see the evidence of evil expressed through people and their actions. And what we read in this passage, this revolutionary Jesus, none of these problems are beyond his power, his influence, and his story of goodness. So if the world is sick, as many of us would say it is, Jesus wants to heal it. He wants to restore it. He wants to love it. So this is revolutionary. Some other things to explain Jesus. Women following Jesus was revolutionary. That did not happen. Calling normal people, fishermen, tax collectors, other people whose society had rejected to be his disciples, his inner circle, was revolutionary. The suggestion that his followers could do the same thing that he was doing, both the followers then and the followers now, that is revolutionary. Claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath was revolutionary. Matthew 5 teaches You have heard that it was said, do this. Jesus says, but I tell you, do this. If Jesus was clashing revolutionary language, clashed with the Roman way of organizing society because they had a certain kingdom mindset and he had a different one, when he starts teaching to the religious people, you've heard that it's said to do this, but I tell you, do this. That's revolutionary language, which is reframing all of society. I read these notes from a commentary this week on this passage explaining more of this side of Jesus that we don't always see, and I'll read this to you. These are not the words and ways of a polite teacher. No matter how brilliant, they go far beyond the claims of a typical priest, poet, philosopher, or even beyond the bold claims of a normal prophet or reformer. These are the primal, disruptive, inspiring, shocking, hopeful words and ways of a revolutionary who seeks to overthrow the status quo in nearly every conceivable way. Jesus' words indicate that what has been known as impossible is now becoming not only possible, but actual. When I read that, explaining this Jesus who doesn't change, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. My prayer was, I want to see that now. I don't like those statements that tell everyone how bad the world is. I want to see this Jesus, this light in the darkness, that doesn't just work for one group of people in a certain decade, but for all, because they're all in it. Moving on. 
Nonviolence was revolutionary. Why? Because violent revolutions are not revolutionary. Noisy regime changes are utterly predictable, brought about by displays of power and hollow promises. Thinking after all these millennia that hate can conquer hate, war cure war, revenge stop revenge, pride overcome pride, violence and violence and exclusion create cohesion is silly. In contrast, the message of Jesus may well be called the most revolutionary of all. Why are we looking at this? Because the world needs a Jesus revolution. And we see it in Jesus. And this is where I'm going to change gears slightly. Because you may be sitting here thinking, this is interesting. Or you may be sitting here thinking, this is not that interesting. What are we having for lunch? That's your call. But the question that I always want to ask as I look at this is, yes, I want to know more about Jesus. But where do we fit in? What about you? What about me? Where do we fit in? Here's an answer. Jesus invited people to follow him. And then he sent them out to do the things that he was doing. That model hasn't changed. So as followers of Jesus, we aren't Christians that read this book, sing some songs, and tick a certain box. Otherwise, we just end up like the wall at the mechanic's waiting room with Jesus on a cross next to the various components of our lives. That's not revolutionary. It could be considered that's not really following Jesus because Jesus didn't ask you to believe in him. Jesus asked you to follow him, which is both belief and actions. So if Jesus is a revolutionary, and he is, then we are meant to be too. The question is, what does that look like? I believe here lies a key to the change that we need to see in society, in communities, and it starts with us. And it flows from us. I want to look at this passage. Put this on the screen. Acts 17, verse 2 to 6. This is the story of the new church with the disciples of Jesus and others, Paul and a few other people, joining this movement, this moment, which I believe hasn't ended. Acts 17. I'm just going to read it on the screen. And it's explaining some of Paul's travel. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, this is where Paul's staying at the time, in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here. Just to look at this passage. 
And remember the Matthew passage that we read a few minutes ago. Paul, a follower of Jesus, and as a follower of Jesus, we're following a revolutionary Jesus, and we are to be the same revolutionary expressions of Jesus. Travels around, and he goes to some synagogues and some communities. This is the same as what we saw in Matthew. And large crowds gather, which again causes conflict, because could this be a conspiracy? Is this a revolutionary moment that could cause offense with either the religious groups or with the political order? And the answer is yes on both accounts. We see that there are Jews and Greeks and women, which is a similar model to what we saw in Jesus' teaching. This is not for some, this is for all. This is not for a certain group that's educated or of a certain class or economic background. This is for everyone. And they're all hearing and responding to this simple message that says Jesus is the one, the only one, the way, the only way. And in a world where you're told there's many ways, there isn't, there's only one, and his name is Jesus. That's the revolutionary message that Paul is preaching. And it gets them in trouble too. Because it tends to do that. When we live revolutionary lives, it tends to cause a stir. I quite like the idea of causing a stir. I don't think I could hold the lamb quite as still as Jesus did in that picture. I mess up. I drop the lamb. I'd eat the lamb at Easter. It's not meant to be tame. It was never meant to be tame. The last passage we read from the NIV, I'm going to read it from a different translation. The accusation. So Jason is this person who's providing lodging for Paul, and Paul's caused this trouble and caused the crowd and taught a revolutionary message, which is triggering all sorts of hazards. So they pull them in front of the court and they make this accusation. And it's made up accusations by religious people that can't keep things in control. And that's always one of the problems that Jesus message stirred. In the New King James Version, it says this, these people have turned the world upside down and have come here too. I love that kind of accusation. These people haven't come here with this tame Jesus is a nice guy message. These people have turned the world upside down with this message. And this message has been brought here too. If you're not convinced that the world is as it should be, this message is the answer. This is the kingdom message that could bring all the change. And what does this mean for you or me? It always happens and begins and moves in the church small c rather than church big c let me explain those two terms we often think church as a as a gathered group as a organization as an institution sometimes it almost seems like it's a business and there's this big facility and people are members of this one but not this one i believe in the organized church. And I believe that there are things that we need to do to effectively operate in the modern world, which brings an element of organization to it. But it's the people of God who are like salt that is shared out in many different settings 
that bring a distinct flavor to the world. It's the small C church. It's the you and me. It's the fact that if we all live revolutionary lives as seen in Jesus and then as sought in the example of Paul, then yes, that would be fun when we do it together on our Sunday morning. But look at the impact that that could have if there's a hundred of us in a hundred different settings, scenarios, neighborhoods, communities, workplaces. That's where revolution happens. That's where change happens. So why is this message for us? Because we're invited to follow and we're invited to be like Jesus. I want to dream about this over the next few weeks. And then we're going to go into the summer and we're going to have a break from this and we're going to have some some different messages. We're not going to be following a a theme or going through a book over the summer and then in the autumn we'll, we'll return to that kind of thing. But I want in September to come back to this. So this message today is part one, next week's part two, and both weeks I'm going to end in a uniquely different way where I'm going to ask for your involvement and your interaction. I believe that what we see of Jesus is the model for us, and I believe that what we see of this message of Jesus, this revolutionary message of Jesus, is the answer for those around us. I want us to unpack and to dream. What could that look like? What does that actually mean in my setting? Aware that it's the small C setting that's likely to bring the most change rather than the big C setting. What does that look like? So, we're going to move around. Some of you are going to say, I love these kind of exercises. Thank you, Adam. Some of you are going to say, I really don't like these kind of exercises. Uh, But I do welcome the gathered wisdom of the voices and the opinions and the ideas in the room. So I do want us to do this. I've got a question that I want us to chew on for the next two weeks. I'm going to end this week doing this and next week as well. What does it look like? I wrote this question out. What does a church that seeks values and centers itself, as in lives it out, not just believes it but does it, around a Jesus revolution look like? What does a church that seeks values and centers itself around a Jesus revolution look like? What I'd like us to do in a minute is going to move some chairs around and just have this conversation with some people that, that are around you. If you don't know anyone and you really don't want to do this, that's okay. I don't ever want to force anyone. If you really don't want to do this, just say, hey, I'm going to sit out from this moment. That's okay. But I would love your consideration. We're going to hand the piece of paper out and some pens. And I'm going to put this table by the door. So when you leave, uh, write some notes, write some answers. Just write bullet points. You don't need to write essays. And leave them on the table for when you exit. Because I want us to journey this question together over the next few weeks. What does it look like in this instance, in this unique moment in time, this moment in history where God decided that it would be a good idea for you to be here on July the 10th, 
2021, sitting in this room, hearing this message, God decided that it's a good idea that you will be alive on the face of the earth at this time. I welcome your contribution. So I'm going to pray. And what I also want to offer at the same time is if you would, lead, if you would like prayer, if you need prayer for anything, it may be something that we've sung or something that, that we said. I think for some of you it may be healing. In this passage, in the Matthew passage that we began with, I stated that there are no instances or examples of any condition beyond the reach of God. None at all. If there's any of you that are struggling with something, and maybe for you it feels like this is beyond the reach of God, then in this moment of movement, please come forward to my right, your left, and our prayer team will be available to pray for you. So, we got some pieces of paper and some pens. We're going to hand them out now. There's going to be some music playing, but we're not going to come back to singing. And we're going to chew on this some more. What does this look like? What's your ideas? What's your observations? I welcome your fingerprints in this. Just question one. Question one. So one question. The question's going to also appear on the screen for those of you that like to, to, to see that. And there's going to be some pens and paper. Like I say, if you'd like prayer, come here. I think the healing one, I think that's probably the Holy Spirit nudging. So if that nudges for you, receive it. There are no conditions, no challenges beyond the reach of Jesus.